0: Well, good morning, living hope. Good to see you. My name is Jeff Brewer, and it is a joy to be able to be here on uh and, and to know that Chad is and the family is away and having a good time in Turkey. I actually met Chad probably close to 30 years ago when we lived in Turkey, and so uh he looks the exact same as he did thirty years ago, which is a little bit frustrating um i'm sure I'm sure i, I when I said you look the exact same, he didn't say you do too and so uh, i was a oh uh, maybe it's uh, I'm sure that was true. I'm sure that's true. But uh, it's, it's just such a joy to be able to be here. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I was here a couple of months ago when you were here on your very first Sunday in the building, and that is such a joy. Um, my wife and I have been involved in our family, involved in church planting since 1998, part of three different church plants up in the Chicago area. And our last church plant before we moved back to Cincinnati was called Hope Fellowship. So kind of we love the name Hope, and we're praying for a building for Hope Fellowship and the new pastor up in Chicago because they're kind of as you probably were over nomad, like kind of nomads week to week to week, and uh, they're praying for such a building as this. and so um, my wife and I have four daughters and one new son-in-law. And we are glad to be able to be back in Cincinnati. After being um, kind of exiles in Chicago for 24 years, we're back in the Cincinnati area and having a great time. And I, I really talk about Cincinnati way too much with our family, talk about how much I love it. And I, I mean, really, it's snowing in Chicago right now, I'm sure, you know, and, and the, just the, the weather over the years just got really, really old up there, but... Um, but we're glad to be back. We live over in Sims Township, and our family worships at North Cincinnati Community Church. And we're really loving being there and being with Pastor Matt May and the the rest of the church family there. And afterwards, we're going to head over to a church picnic there, which it's not rained for three weeks. And then the church picnic, and it rains today. So, um, well, we're going to look at Psalm 131. I'm going to read it in just a minute, but uh, let me go ahead and pray, and then I'll introduce it a little bit, and then we'll read. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to stop and do something completely unique in our weeks, that is to rest our minds and our hearts from kind of thinking about all of the cares of this world, all of the things that occupy our time, all of the distractions that we both put into our lives and come upon our lives. And so this time, help us to quiet our hearts. Help us to look to your word, to be fed from your word, by the power of your spirit. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to begin this morning by talking about a man named Gary. We'll call him Gary because that's his name, actually. Gary was a truck driver. Who uh, came to faith in Christ? A friend of ours actually uh, met his wife at the Target in Target, and they were shopping, and they kind of struck up a conversation. Invited them to church. Uh, Gary had never heard the gospel before. He comes over to our house. He hears the gospel. He believes. And, and he was a he was a trucker. He was a big man. I remember he got baptized in a cow trough in the front of the of a church building. And when he went down into the water, all the water went spilling kind of down the down the stairs and. I, Gary was a, a guy, just one of these guys that I was just immediately drawn to and endeared to. And about a, a year after they started coming to our church, his wife got sick, and we went and we visited her in the hospital, and we prayed for her, and different families in the church were making them meals. And after a few weeks, his wife made a complete recovery. But really, Gary never did. He started drifting. He started kind of walking away from church week after week, and then our meetings together became further and farther between. And when we finally sat down, he opened up and he said, listen, um, I am so angry that she got sick and God could have prevented it. And, and I, I was kind of struck by that. I, did, I didn't really almost know what to say because I said, well, but she's, she's been healed. She's completely fine now. And he said, yeah, but she might not have been fine. And the thought that God would take her from me means he might not be a God I can trust. He might not do a God the thing, who would do the things that I would expect him to do. Now, I don't actually think Gary was all that unique in his thinking about God. Maybe he was one of the only ones that would actually verbalize it. And maybe there might be here some who feel the exact same way, that you think about your life, you look at the situations you're in, and and you wonder, God, what are you doing? And you wonder that so much that you're tempted to either walk away or you're tempted to kind of try to just fix the problem yourself or to just scream at God and say, what are you doing, God? Why don't you fix this right now? Maybe it's a a loved one who's sick. Maybe it's a job that you have and you lost, or one that you didn't get. Maybe it's chronic pain that you're enduring, or a marriage that's full of disappointment. The question might be for us this morning is, how do you respond when you're so perplexed, so disoriented, so full of pain, that you can't begin to understand, God, how are you in control right now? Well, as we come to Psalm 131 here this morning, it's a very short psalm. It's a psalm of a sense. Psalm 131 is all about how we can calm and quiet our hearts when God is working in a way that doesn't make sense to us at all. So Psalm 131 is all about how we can calm and quiet our hearts when God is working in a way that doesn't make sense to us at all. So let me read this short psalm, and then I'm going to summarize, I'm going to kind of paraphrase the whole psalm. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up Psalm 131. If you're new to your Bibles, it's right in the middle, the book of Psalms is right in the middle of your book of the the Bible. Psalm 131, starting in verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Now here's, here's how I paraphrase this psalm, I kind of put it in my own words. Lord, your God And I'm not. And since I'm not God, I'm done trying to take on the role, your role, and figure out things that are way too difficult for me to even comprehend. Instead, I've calmed and I've quieted myself like a content baby with its mother, resting in her arms. And so, everyone who hears me, fellow believers, put your hope always and forever in the Lord. Now, we're going to spend our time really kind of, uh, kind of fleshing that out and seeing kind of how, do, how does that paraphrase show us what this is saying. And so I want us to look at just two main points here. First, the rest-robbing power of pride. The rest-robbing power of pride. And then secondly, we're going to look at the power of hope to put the heart at rest. So let's look first here at the rest-robbing power of pride. So look again with me here at verse 1. It's a prayer from David, and he writes, "O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And so if you notice here, David is talking about, he's starting with the negative. He's saying, I'm not full of pride, and I'm not spending time worrying a thing about things that are too marvelous or, for, or too great for me to understand. And, and the word marvelous there picks up a word that's in other places translated difficult. So, so I do not occupy myself with things that are too difficult for me to understand. You know, like Genesis eighteen fourteen, when God's speaking to Abraham and Sarah about His promise to give him the give them these old this old couple a son. He says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Is anything too marvelous? Is it, is it too difficult for the Lord? And the answer is clearly no. And so when David's saying, I'm not concerning myself with things too difficult or too great for me, what he's saying is, I'm not God, so I'm not going to try to make for God a blueprint about what I think he should do in any given situation. His ways are not my ways. And so his ways are too difficult for me to understand and to be able to kind of manipulate and and fix. And so David is saying, I'm not trying to do that. I'm taking, taking a step back. Now, let's flip it around a little bit, though. I suspect, like you, like me, have been tempted to think, well, if I were God, I would do this. I mean, you've probably had that thought, right? You're in a situation and you think, well, if I was God, I'd do this. Or maybe kind of a little bit more kind of theologically kind of where we don't, we know that that's probably wrong to say that. So I, I'm not going to say I, if I were God. So I'll say, when I get to heaven, the first thing I'm going to ask God is, why did this happen? Or why did that happen? It's, it's very natural for us to do that. And what we're doing at that moment, though, is we're elevating ourselves, you know, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. We're kind of trying to take on these things that we can't possibly understand, and we're trying to kind of take them upon ourselves and understand them, which is pride. God knows everything beyond what we could possibly know. And so it's pride for us to essentially say to God, listen, God, could you come over here and step into my office for a minute? Because I don't think you're aware of all of the implications of the things you're doing. And, and I've heard around, I've been listening to people, and they're confused. And so let me kind of, kind of come in, and I'll just walk you through it. I'm sure everything's going to be fine after that. You know, we, we would never dare say such a thing to God. But in reality, in our hearts, we can have that attitude of pride and essentially be acting as if we're God's counselor and putting ourselves into the place of trying to figure out exactly what needs to happen next. And so what David's saying is, that's not what I'm doing. I'm not occupying myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He knows God is God and he is not. But what about for you? Or for me here this morning? What about for the one who is occupying themselves with things too great or too marvelous for them to understand? What about for the one who is scurrying around and trying to figure out, what are you doing, God, and what's going to happen, and how can I fix it? My, my guess is, if we're honest here this morning, what, what you would you want to tell God he needs to fix about your life? is your worry or your constant anxiety about your circumstances or a situation or a person in your life, what that worry is betraying is just betraying the fact that maybe, perhaps, you're trying to put yourself in the place of God. And so the the question that I would ask myself and you is, if that's the case, how's that working out for you? I mean, it's exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting because not only do you still have the pain of the situation or the circumstance you're in, you also then have the pressure that you're putting yourself in to act like God himself, to act like you have to have the power to fix it and to have the power to fix something that you don't have the knowledge or the power or the skill to fix. And so really in that way, Psalm 131, it's an invitation to freedom, it's an invitation to say, how can I know peace and calmness and quietness of soul where we don't feel the pressure to be in control? You know, Psalm 46 says it this way, it's what, and really is what this is a call to, to be still and know that I am God. To be still and know that he is God and we are not. So that's the rest-robbing power of pride. If we're putting ourselves in the place of God, it is going to be exhausting because we're still going to be dealing with the pain of, of the situation we're in, as well as the pressure of we don't have the ability to fix it on our own. So let's turn now to then, the power of hope to put the heart at rest. the power of hope to put the heart at rest. You know, I, I have a, a pair of noise cancelling headphones. And there is something insanely satisfying to me about putting on those, those headphones and flipping the switch and just having the whole world just kind of go quiet. And so much so that it was a little embarrassing. I was on a flight coming back from Atlanta on Friday, and I had these headphones on, and people were boarding on the plane. And the next thing I know, there's a man standing in front of me doing this trying to get my attention because I was on the aisle and he needed to get in. And I, I, I'm i so glad Jen and the girls weren't there because they would have been so mortified that I was just so in my own world. But it, it was just, it was such a kind of just quiet environment because I had these, these ca- noise-canceling headphones on. And, and the noise-canceling works because the headphones produces a frequency that masks the noise around you in the in the environment. And so, Our temptation to think, I think, when we think about having a calm and a quiet heart or to be still, I think our temptation is to think that a calm and quiet soul is an ability to tune out the world around us, to kind of magically kind of tune our brains or spiritually tune our brains that just kind of does away with the frequency all around us, that we'd somehow sort of be on a higher plane and rise above it all. But if we think we can land on the secret of life apart from God, no sooner do we land on a frequency that we think, okay, this is it, I've kind of found the secret and this is going to calm my heart, then our situation changes or life changes or something comes about and it starts to just kind of the noise level and the calmness, the calmness starts to go down and the noise level starts to go up in our hearts. And so that's why I think we can very easily start to kind of think like, well, if only, if only I could, you know, have the right job, or if I can just make the right salary, or if I can find the right spouse, or if I can, we can just find the right house that's going to be just the perfect size for us, then I'll be satisfied. But the problem is, as we know, none of these things are ultimately able to calm and to quiet our hearts None of these things can set our, we set our minds on can actually kind of cancel out the noise of our own hearts because of sin. And so really, we need a calming from the inside. We need a supernatural calming. Supernatural calming. And I think that's what David is pointing at here. So when we get to verse 2, look with me at verse 2. He says, so he's, he's saying, I've not set my mind on these, th- these things too difficult for me. But... I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, first, I want to just remind us this is David writing this psalm. And this psalm in particular is kind of seems maybe a little out of order because we're in the Psalms of Ascent, excuse me, in book five of the Psalter. And the Psalms of Ascent were used, likely used by worshipers, kind of making their way up to Jerusalem. And so as these, uh, as these worshipers were making their way up to Jerusalem, they had these kind of Psalms of Ascent that they'd be going through one after the other. And, and David, in fact, wrote this one. And if you think about the life of David, David could teach a master class in living life in circumstances that don't make sense. So the thing about his life, first, first he's just, uh, excuse me, Jen, could you bring me my water? He, Thank you. I just want an excuse to introduce you to the church. <clears throat> thank you. So the thing about the life of David here, his his life is just this uh just a perfect example of a life that doesn't seem to make sense. He's, he's a shepherd boy. He's out in the fields. He's called in. He's anointed king, but yet there's still this King Saul who's there, who begins to hunt him down, and he's hiding in caves, and continually uh, he, he, we see David unwilling to defend himself even though he was the anointed king. And, and put into the context of the life of David, Psalm 131 is all the more helpful because it helps us to see how David related to God. In in short, David was able for for the majority of his life to allow God to be God, and he was able to have a calm and quiet heart before him, even when everything around him seemed to be in chaos. So here in Psalm 131, David describes his calmed and quieted soul. He uses, he uses one illustration, and he repeats it twice in parable for emphasis. He says, My soul is like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. Now, now a child is weaned when it sto- from its mother when it stops nursing and begins to eat food. And when a baby is a nursing baby is awake and with their mother, they're they're looking to nurse. And so I think the reason why he's using this illustration here is kind of the the fact that a nursing child can't be calmed until they're being cared for by by their mother in the one way that they the one thing that they feel they need all the time. But a weaned child, one who has been weaned from his mother's milk is able to be with their mother and be content and satisfied with them, not just what they give them or what they want in the moment. And so what David's saying in using this illustration is, I'm not fussing and fidgeting like a little child, like a little baby, trying to get the only the one thing that I need. I'm content to rest in you. I'm content to wait for you. And so he says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Now the apostle Paul says something quite similar in Philippians chapter 1 verse or chapter 4 verse 11. Paul says, "I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of faith in, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need." Now, before I, obviously, the, the, the kind of payoff of that is in the next verse, but the link between Psalm 131 and Philippians 4 is the concept of learning contentment. Just like a baby has to be weaned and has to learn contentment and solid food, so also do we have to learn how to calm and quiet our souls. Look, I, I think. We need to be very careful not to just think about a calm and quiet soul like a temperament. Like all of us have different temperaments, right? Some, some people just are, are more high-strung by nature. Some people are just more chill by nature. That's not what, what ultimately what David is referring to here in the psalm. It's not temperament. It's not just a kind of learn to just relax, it's, it's something deeper than that where it's, there's a contentment, there's a resting, there's a realization that everything's going to be okay even if I can't see how it's going to be okay. So how do we do that? It's not through a meditation technique. It's not through learning the right prayer to pray or just kind of what's the next book that comes out that we can kind of find the secret of the Christian life. We calm and we quiet our souls When we take our rest in God. You know, in Philippians, Paul's not just saying he's learned to be content, like this state of mind or emotion. He's learned to go with the flow. He's learned contentment by knowing, in in context of Philippians 4, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Through Christ who gives him strength, he can do all things. He can learn, he can have plenty of money, he can have no money. He can have plenty to eat, he can have nothing to eat. He can be shipwrecked. He can go through all of that list that kind of he walks through in Corinthians and kind of talks about all of the things he's gone through, and he can be content, not because the situation demands contentment. In fact, I would argue, if you look at that list that Paul kind of lists off, he's been beaten, shipwrecked, you know, adrift at sea, all of these things, those were things that would make the best of people anxious and worrying, struggling. But he's saying, no, no, I I know those are hard, but I've learned contentment through him who can give me strength, even in the hardest of circumstances. In fact, that proves the strength of Christ by that he can meet us even in the most difficult times of our lives. So in order to still our hearts, we have to know there's somebody stronger. We have to know we don't have to be the ultimate one who can solve all my problems. Look, if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, kind of, look, I've got to look out for number one, numero uno. I've got to be the one that's just kind of watching out for myself because who else has my back? That is going to be a road that will continually, continually lead you down a path of worry and anxiety and difficulty and pain because you're not strong enough. And that's where we're pointed to in Scripture over and over and over again is that we can not only just get by, we can have hope. So the connection piece between Psalm 131 and Philippians 4 is because God is knowing that, because we know that God is strong enough and we know he's in control and we know he's provided for us our greatest need in Christ, we can have hope. So look at verse 3 with me. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. You know, I love how the message paraphrase of the Bible puts this. It says, wait, Israel, for God. Wait with hope. Hope now. Hope always. I love that. Just kind of pulling out this. Wait for God. And in our waiting, how do we wait? Do we just, like, I... I, I'm learning to wait in lines. I spend a lot of my life, uh, I'm the executive director of a mission agency and I stand in a lot of lines all around the world. And I do, by my, my nature and my family, I mean, I do not come from the stock of a kind of family who just stands in a line and just kind of loves it, you know, just kind of patiently. Now I come from a family who's always like, what, what is happening there? Like, what's going on? Why is he, I, I don't naturally kind of just wait well. So how do we learn to wait? I think we learn here in the context of Scripture is we're waiting for God and we're trusting He's at work, He's strong enough, He's knowledgeable enough that He knows what's going on, even when I'm standing and I'm wondering what's happening. So, what does it mean to have hope? You know, one, one kind of aspect of hope uh, in the, the new dictionary of biblical theology says it this way throughout the Bible, hope is closely associated with God himself and the outworking of his purposes in history. And so hope and God go hand in hand because God's a personal God who's drawn near to his people so that they might be pulled out of despair and misery for sin. Pulled out of the endless cycle to make peace for ourselves. That's where our hope comes is God stepping into our lives and stepping into our situation, and bringing true and lasting possibilities for hope. You know, it's, it's almost like this. It's like, it's as if humanity was riding an exercise bike in front of a brick wall, and humanity was just going as hard as they could on that, bicycle, on that exercise bike, and just saying, if I just pedal harder, I'm going to get to the mountaintop. If I can just get, go a little bit further, I'm going to get to where I want to go. And it's as if God stepped in at some point in your life and in my life, or maybe yet to do that. Maybe it's today. When he stops in, steps into your life and he taps you on the shoulder and says, listen, you're going nowhere. Actually, you're working so hard, you're exhausting yourself, and you're not even heading in a direction. But I'm going to draw near to you. I'm going to give to you my son. So that he might bring you to the true mountaintop. He might bring you to your heavenly home, that you might be with me forever, and that you might know true and lasting joy and peace that you can find in my son Jesus, who will pay for you. And I will, I'm drawing, and God drew near to us so much that he was willing to give his only son to pay the price for our sin, to not only just get us out of the futility of our striving but to get us out of the inability for us to actually go anywhere and earn our way to God. We couldn't do it, but Jesus brought us in. And so through Jesus, we can find ultimate rest because we have in Jesus a hope that will not disappoint. It won't fade away. It is our inheritance. You know, Paul says it this way in Colossians 3.1, Set your minds on things above where Christ is. And so the the connection there is when we're looking to the hope of heaven, we're not just looking to the hope of we'll see loved ones who believed in Jesus, we'll be in kind of a perfect sinless world. Those are things that, those are good and hopeful things. But ultimately, set your mind on things above where Christ is. He is our hope. Hope has a name and it's Jesus. You know, let me just point out one verse here of Romans 5, 2 through Jesus, we've a- obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And he, Paul says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so the more we set our minds on heaven, the hope of Jesus, the more we set our minds on eternal life, it's going to it's going to make suffering and pain and disappointment and confusion, it's going to help put them in perspective. Look, What the Bible doesn't promise is that our life is going to be easy, ever. It never promises that. But what the Bible does bring us in pointing us to Christ is that we can have hope in the midst of the most painful and confusing and difficult situations when they don't make sense. And so to conclude here this morning, let's just recap. God is God and we're not. He's provided salvation for us and hope for through his son, Jesus. And so we can sit at the fate of, fate, feet of Jesus and we can say, I don't know how this situation I'm in is going to work out. And I'm tempted to try and instruct God right now. But I'm going to prayerfully and patiently wait because I know the hope I have in Jesus is far better and it's going to make all of these light and temporary sufferings that I'm going through be seen as light and temporary one day in light of that. And so I don't know the struggles you're going through here this morning. If I could ask you the question, if I could just walk through the the congregation and say, what are you worried about? I'm sure there would be as many answers as people in the room. Worried about wayward children. Worried about being a caregiver to your aging parents. Worried about financial stress. Worried about marriage. Worried about not being married. Worried about disappointment at work. And if I ask you another question as a follow-up and say, not only what are you worried about, if I just ask, are you weary? As you wait for the answers to these questions, I would guess that there would be a resounding sigh in you. And you'd say, yeah, I am weary. I am tired. I, I'm I'm struggling. And so, in that way, I don't think it's an accident at all that Psalm 131 was placed right after Psalm 130. Because Psalm 130 is a psalm of waiting. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Now, our greatest temptation when we wait is to worry and to grow weary to the point where we start demanding things from God or telling him what he needs to do. We start demanding, essentially, that we can step in as God. But that's precisely where Psalm 131 helps us to stop and recognize. God's in control. He's at work even if we don't see how. And so, I just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning and you're wondering, I don't know how God is at work. I can't see how he's going to fix this problem or if it'll ever be solved. I can't promise you what he will do, but I can promise you he is at work and he's given his son to show you the promise of hope that you have, that you can cling to him and know you can trust in him both now and forever. And so hope now, hope always. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time in your word that you meet us where we are, so many varied places, so many hearts that some who are content, some who are very restless, some who are going through trials that would make us weep to hear of them, some who are bearing up under weights of trials that they've shared with no one. And so, Father, I pray you would draw near right now by the power of your Holy Spirit to every person in this room, that you would minister to them, that you would show them that you are in control, that you are God. You have given your son, Jesus, as hope and joy and peace. And so, Lord, help us to wait with patience. Help us to have calm and quiet hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.